January 14th, update on Jamie Kloss. Because there's a troll or two, making it very fucking clear I'm repetitive and reading from a script, I'd like to say, yep, nailed it. So, no need to continue to create accounts that I'll have to block, okay? And also, fuck off and get a life. Oh, and I can't change my boy voice. If you find it to be worse than nails on a chalkboard, just don't listen. Deal? Now, to be clear, in the event I've ever misled anyone, I'm an unqualified podcast host. Oh, and this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder. In general, there's a shit ton of information to cover in these episodes, and I'm not equipped to research absorb to the level of understanding that I can discuss the nuances of an episode for an hour from the hip. If you're looking for that level of intellect on a subject, stop now and hit up some Sam Harris or some shit. Now, if you're looking to listen to an unqualified podcast host, welcome. Jamie Kloss Part 2. This case is insane. I'm going to assume everybody knows about the fact she saved herself last week. In short, her alleged captor, Jake Patterson, left her uh, for whereabouts unknown She freed herself, escaped the home she was held in, presumably, for 87 days, and ran for help. She encountered a woman walking her dog. Oh, crazy note. That woman, it was like her first day at the cabin. She uh, was brought uh, safely then to a neighbor's house. It's presumed that Patterson returned home and noticed Jamie had escaped. He then entered his vehicle to find her. It was while Patterson was looking for Jamie that police apprehended Patterson in the vehicle that Jamie had described. As of Friday, we know that Jamie was safe with an aunt after spending a night in the hospital for observation here in Minnesota. She's back in Wisconsin now. Patterson was charged with two counts of murder um, for the murders of Jamie's parents and one count of kidnapping. As I write this Monday, there have been no new charges. It is anticipated that charges pertaining to sexual assault Jamie endured will be filed today or potentially at a later date. From my unqualified podcast host's position, I've noticed this is something commonly done to preserve the privacy of a young victim for as long as possible. And in a high profile case like this, it's pretty understandable. I'd like to comment on why I think this case has garnered so much attention. It's a movie script, a whodunit, and it's straight schadenfreude. But even more than that, it's a nightmare come true. A man kicks or shoots in the door of your home. A killer executes your mom and dad in front of your eyes. The man kidnaps you and gets away with it for nearly three months. The police don't bust down the door and save the day. You escape, you run. You find a woman walking her dog and you're not safe yet. She brings you to a house. You're not safe yet. Then the police show up. Only then will you start to feel safe. And then the healing and grieving can begin. Because for three months, you were in peril. You weren't processing the murder of your parents. You were surviving. Now you're nationally recognizable, which helped save your life potentially, but will also follow you the rest of your days. It makes me sad that at 13, her story has been written for her. She can, of course, go on and do amazing things on her own, but her identity has been created for her. Orphan, victim of kidnapping, presumed sexual assault too. 
she's going to face a lifetime of challenges that stem from these events. I can only hope that the public interest in this case fuels people to help Jamie and her family, not just in the coming weeks, but for the years to come. New information I gleaned today. The suspect accused of killing James and Denise Kloss and kidnapping their 13-year-old daughter Jamie first spotted her when he was on his way to work as she was getting onto a school bus. So that whole Jenny O thing was just a coincidence. And this is all according to the uh, criminal complaint that was released today, Monday, by the Barron County District Attorney. The defendant states when he saw Jamie, he knew that was the girl that he was going to take. The startling criminal complaint comes on the same day that Jake Patterson, 21, will make his first court appearance in Barron County to face charges of intentional homicide, kidnapping, and armed burglary. Last Thursday, Jamie was found alive about 66 miles from her home in rural northwestern Wisconsin. Patterson allegedly shot and killed Jamie's parents before abducting the 13-year-old from her home on October 15th. After going missing for 88 days, Jamie was found walking down a road in Gordon, Wisconsin. In frigid weather without a coat and gloves, she had fled the home um, she had fled the home where law enforcement says she was being kept and came across a woman walking her dog. That woman then took Jamie to a nearby home and called police. It's still unclear at the time of this recording if she was held in the same home the entire 88 days. The complainants based on information from deputies Jamie Kloss and Patterson and represents the first time their perspectives have been made public. Patterson told investigators that he had been to the house twice previously before October 15th to try to kidnap her. How fucking chilling. And if only someone saw something and said something, then could have this all been averted? Doubtful. See the mental illness episode for my take on why. A week prior to the murder and abduction, Patterson drove to the Kloss home but was scared off because there were several cars in the driveway. A day or two later, Patterson again drove to the Kloss home but saw the lights were on and people were walking around, so he decided not to go through with the plan then either. But on October 15th, Jamie told investigators that she got up to learn why her dog was barking and saw a vehicle coming up their driveway. The suspect then shot and killed her father at the door as she and her mother hid in the bathroom. And her mother held her in a bear hug. Ugh, it's just terrifying. It's still unclear if uh, Mr. Kloss was shot through the door or immediately after the door was kicked or shot in. But nonetheless, the two girls were hiding in the bathroom. Once gaining access to the house, Patterson then broke down the bathroom door and told Denise to put tape over Jamie's mouth, but she struggled to do so. Then Patterson put tape around Jamie's mouth himself, bound her by the hands and ankles, and then finally shot Denise. Oh, allegedly in shit. Patterson then dragged Jamie out to the trunk of his car and drove back to his home. Again, it's about 70 miles from the class residence. I've seen 66, I've seen 70, so somewhere in there. Public defenders uh, Richard Jones and Charles Glenn, who represented Patterson, told WCCO that they understand how hard the case had hit the community 
as a Minnesotan, it's been in the news consistently. Truth be told, I assumed she was dead. This is me talking, to be clear. I'm sure there were many smarter minds that assumed the worst, too. I can only begin to speculate how that may have altered or hampered the search for Jamie. Again, my opinions. Back to the quote, this is a tragic situation from every perspective. A lot of heavy hearts, a lot of thoughts and prayers going around, Glenn said. You've seen how people have come together the last few months. There's going to be a whole lot of healing that needs to go on in this community from every perspective. And we have all the faith in the world that that will take place. They did not share many specifics about their client's case, WCCO reported. The lawyers have not responded to multiple CNN requests for comment either. Once Jamie was in captivity, the suspect took her clothes and other items and destroyed them to hide evidence. Jamie told detectives that Patterson would make her hide under his twin-size bed in his bedroom when he had friends or relatives over. Can you even imagine being one of those people that had been in the house during that time and never, ever victim blaming? And it could have been the end of her, but what if she had screamed for help? God, that poor sweet girl. Patterson made it clear that nobody was to know she was in there or bad things would happen to her, Jamie says in the complaint a couple of times. Okay, the really tough stuff. When Jamie was under Patterson's bed, he stacked totes and laundry bins around the bed with weights and barbells stacked against them so she could not move without him noticing. This totally reminds me of GSK's MO. One time, Jamie stated she accidentally moved one of the totes when she was told to hide under the bed and Patterson told her something bad would happen to her if she did it again. In one instance, the suspect hit her really hard on the back um, with what she described as a handle or something used to clean blinds when he got mad at her. The suspect would also turn music on in his room so she couldn't hear what was happening if there was anyone else in the home. Not blaming anyone, but wouldn't that be a little sketch? Just visiting a friend or relative and they have music blaring from an empty room? I guess I'm just suspect of everyone all the damn time. And in this case, there was good reason to have those spidey senses on full alert. After three months in captivity on January 10th, Patterson told Jamie he was going to leave for five to six hours and made her go under the bed. After he left, she pushed the weights away from the bed, put on a pair of his shoes and walked out of the house toward a woman walking a dog. Police came to the scene and Patterson was arrested that same day. Patterson was arrested while he was in his vehicle, presumably looking for Jamie. When I picture Jamie making a break for it in a rural setting, knowing that Patterson could be back at any moment, it gives me anxiety just thinking about that cinematic moment. I can almost see the footprints in the snow, the bare footprints in the snow. Aunts, cousins, and other members of Jamie's family will be present when Patterson makes his first uh, court appearance um, today, Monday. Um, Family member Angela uh, D'Andrio said, D'Andrio, who is the niece of Jamie's aunt Sue Allard, told CNN in a phone interview that Sue, her sister Jennifer, and Sue's son Jake Allard are all expected to be in court for Patterson's appearance. According to D'Andrio, the family wants to be in court because they want justice. Totally understand. 
Barron County Sheriff Chris Fitzgerald said Monday that the case was, was still very active and that he could not share details of what Patterson had told authorities. He did say that Patterson acted alone and that he had a very targeted approach and planned out attack on the family. I did meet with Jamie last night, he said, and that shy 13-year-old girl that we've been describing for 88 days has got a big smile on her face, he said. Investigators are working to piece together what happened over the last three months, including the conditions of the house and how she escaped. Fitzgerald said that he did not believe there was a connection between Patterson and the Kloss family, and there was no social media contact or digital footprint connecting them. Detectives have been searching the suspect's home for clues and evidence that could help explain what happened. All I know is that she was able to get out of the house and get help and people recognized her as Jamie Kloss right away, Fitzgerald said over the weekend. Kloss was released from a Minnesota hospital Friday and is staying in Barron, Wisconsin with an aunt. Jamie had a pretty good night of sleep, her aunt Jennifer Smith posted Sunday to Facebook. It was great to know she was next to me all night, she wrote. What a great feeling to have her home. CNN's uh, Madeline Holgram, Jason Hanna, Faith Kararmi, Steve Almsme, Sheena Jones, and Ray Sanchez uh, contributed to the report that I just pulled heavily from. So it literally reads like a book. I really hope that the community will support her as she grieves and processes the shit she's been through and will continue to endure. I believe there's some kind of fund set up for her. I haven't vetted any funding sites, so please do so at your own risk. A little uh, miscellaneous info on Jake Patterson that may or may not be relevant. He was a washed-up U.S. uh, Marine. He was in for a little more than a month, about five weeks is what I've seen a couple of times over. Jake Thomas Patterson wrote in his high school yearbook that he planned to join the Marines after graduation, but military records show he lasted for only about five weeks before being prematurely discharged in October 2015 um, at the rank of private. See, just stick to your notes, lady. Marine spokeswoman Yvonne Carlock said by email that Patterson's early discharge indicated, quote, the character of his service was incongruent with Marine Corps' expectations and standards, end quote. Patterson didn't even know Jamie's name when he abducted her and murdered her parents, allegedly. How many times do I have to fucking say that? Allegedly. Patterson kept Jamie under the bed for up to 12 hours at a time with no food, water, or bathroom breaks. Photos of the Wisconsin cabin where Patterson is suspected of kidnapping Jamie Kloss and holding her, um, allegedly, 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 um, where he held the teenager show an unfinished ceiling, a three-car garage, and an empty box of adult female diapers in the trash. Patterson is being held on bail at the amount of $5 million. I haven't been able to confirm any sodomy or sexual assault charges formally. This is something I will keep an eye out for, for sure. It could be um, gross sensationalism, or it could just be that they're delaying bringing those charges for her privacy. As I sit here as an unqualified host speculating wildly, um, I think it's the latter. 
it's amazing Jamie is alive and well, all things considered. It's so rare that in the true crime world, there's an ending that ends as positively as possible. But I want to be clear about one thing. Jamie SSDGM'd. If you don't know what that means, you'll probably think it's inappropriate in this situation if you Google it. She took control of her power and she got the fuck out. She's brave. She's sure to have a story to tell when and if she wants to, and certainly on her own terms. Jamie saved herself from the unthinkable. After nearly three months, it's easy to see how someone so young could become paralyzed by fear. Fucking hooray for having the tenacity to get the fuck out. As a child growing up in the 90s in Minnesota, Jacob Wetterling was a household name. I never thought we'd find out what happened to him. It took 20 years, but we know. I had the same apathetic feeling about Jamie. Such a rural location, so few leads. If she hadn't made an escape, who knows how her story would have ended. Okay, so my toddler is freaking out with dad in the background. Um, Hopefully you don't hear any of that. We'll see. So um, there's no easy transition from the inspirational escape of Jamie Kloss um, to an issue that needs to be addressed, but here goes. So to take nothing away from the horrific experience of the Kloss family, I wouldn't be doing my job as an unqualified podcast host if I didn't point out society's prioritization of the blonde and blue-eyed in situations like these. This is called missing white girl or white woman syndrome. Don't hate the messenger. Hate and do something about the message. Okay? I'm feisty today, apparently. So stories of missing black and Latina girls sparked an outcry on Twitter and Facebook recently because there seemed to be a flurry of new cases that were being underreported, underreported by local news in the Washington, D.C. area and like everywhere else when you start to look. This uproar prompted black lawmakers in Congress to formally ask the Justice Department to do more to investigate what seemed like a spike in new incidents of missing black girls. The sense that these cases were being ignored ignored, seemed like another example of missing white woman syndrome, a phrase coined by Gwen Ifill, the late PBS anchor. It refers to the mainstream media's seeming fascination with covering missing or endangered white women like Lacey Peterson or Natalie Holloway and its seeming disinterest in cases involving missing people of color. So what do we know about race and missing persons coverage? Not a whole lot according to Zach Summers, a sociologist at Northwestern University who studies crime. He said there's a pretty sizable body of research that shows that white people are more likely than people of color to appear in news coverage as victims of violent crime, but relatively little when it comes to missing persons cases. It's to that end that Summers undertook a study that looked at every missing person case covered by four online media outlets in 2013. He wanted a mix of national and local outlets and news sources for cities from different regions with contrasting demographic profiles. He analyzed coverage in the Star Tribune of Minneapolis, the Chicago Tribune, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and included CNN.com, which has an outsized influence on the national um, conversation. 
Summers then cross-referenced their coverage with the FBI's National Database of Missing Persons, which he said maps relatively well with the country's broader demographics. What Summers found was that white woman, women were much more likely to be the subject of news coverage relative to their proportions among missing persons, and women in general were significantly more likely than men to be covered. The white women make up about a third of the national population. Half of the articles in the data set are just about white females alone, Summers said. But he also found that the coverage of missing white women was different in intensity. Outlets were more likely to repeatedly report on particular stories of missing white women, which then drove up the total number of articles about white women. By choosing to disproportionately highlight the experience of whites and women, these foreign news websites are implicitly or perhaps explicitly Intimating that these cases of those individuals matter more, Summers wrote. As an example, it's like the less dead, you know, it's exactly that. As an example of how coverage intense, um, intensity can skew the numbers of articles about missing persons, Summers pointed to the much-covered case of three women in Cleveland who were held prisoner by a man in his home's basement for 10 years. I think this is Ariel... Ariel... Castro? I can't remember now. In 2013, about one in four articles in the four outlets Summer analyzed that were about missing Latinas were about the Cleveland case specifically. Summer wondered if race increased the amount of media attention paid to that case as well. There were three women involved. Two of them were white and one of them was Latina, he said. Thinking about how the coverage would have differed if all of them were women of color, we probably would have seen some very different numbers. There are a few things that are likely happening here. Coverage decisions are informed consciously and less so by a news person's racial makeup. And most major American newsrooms remain disproportionately white. Again, see my episode on patriarchy. But Summer speculates that there's also the economic calculus of news coverage to consider. In skewing this type of coverage toward white women, news outlets might be deciding that missing white women are worth more in terms of eyeballs and ad revenue. There are some important caveats to the FBI data that Summers used. The Bureau's breakdown of missing persons cases by race is roughly 60% white, 35% black, and 4% other. But it doesn't... Dis, um, you know, like differentiate between Latinos and white people, which suggests that the total number of missing white people could be inflated in the data. The FBI data also doesn't break down race and gender combinations, making it difficult to determine, for example, how many black women might be among missing people relative to white women. But there's one other big detail Summer said we don't know about missing persons coverage. As intuitive as it seems, there's little data to support the notion that media exposure helps resolve such cases. But Summers said equitable coverage matters even if it's as yet unproven investigative value. Media attention shapes how and to whom people extend their sympathies. I think, conceding, that the people who are most cognitively easy for us to accept as victims are girls and women um, is, pop- is problematic of its own, Summer said. 
Then we start to think about race in conjunction with that. Then the issues start to multiply even further from there. There are some great podcasts out there that cover the Highway of Tears, um, which is probably the most um, like predominantly, um, like I guess that podcast focuses specifically on the Native American community, which is one of the most oppressed in the, in the nation. Anyway, um, if I'm remembering correctly, um, I want to say that it is um, the in insight podcast but anyway one of those podcasts does a really good job just check out highway of tears and you'll find a couple of pods on it probably um but the less dead the less missing it's an area that i think we certainly need to continue to discuss and try to chip away at that every missing person is important they're not runaways they're not drug dealers they're not sex workers they're people they're somebody's family and we need to treat them all the same So is addressing missing white girl syndrome in this episode appropriate? Probably not. Someone will let me know. I do appreciate constructive criticism. Please reach out on Twitter at SMTaboo. Thanks for listening.